it upends a lot of the stereotypes we have of what happens in a riot and like what is happening in a protest that has violent elements to it. In recent podcasts, we've talked about the coronavirus pandemic and the impact it's had on journalism and how newsrooms have been challenged to cover it. Now, following the death in Minneapolis of George Floyd, while in the custody of police, journalists are finding a new challenge, how to cover the protests that have popped up in their communities and the way police departments are reacting to them. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. The Marshall Project and 538 just published a fascinating article about how many police departments are mishandling their protests. Today, I'm joined by the authors of that story, Jamiles Vlardy of The Marshall Project and Maggie Kurth of 538. Welcome to the podcast, Jamiles and Maggie. Hi, thank you for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Your story seemed like incredible timing when it came out. I guess it was published, on, I think, on June 1st. How did you develop this story about police mishandling protests? Well, it started, I'm science reporter at 538, so a lot of what I end up covering is political issues around kind of public issues. And so when I was sitting here in Minneapolis watching all of this unfold, I started looking around on Google Scholar to see what had been written about police interaction with protesters and ran across a paper that was talking about you know, 50 years of research and how this had been studied for decades and that researchers had kind of kept coming to the conclusion that escalating force did not have the effect that police thought it did and in fact escalated violence. And I started wondering, you know, if they've known this for this long and they keep finding the same things over and over, why is it not changing? How did you develop the story? Did you both write it together? Did you both research it? Yeah, to a degree. So, I mean, it really started with Maggie approaching the Marshall Project and sort of offering, hey, we've thought of this idea, done a little bit of research into it. It seems interesting. It seems ripe for exploration in this moment. And having the kind of connection into law enforcement and criminal justice reporting that you have, you know, maybe that's a potential way where we can partner and and make this stronger. And insofar as this is a journalism podcast, I would say, you know, I always recommend and advise for fellow reporters to like reach out, especially when the news cycle is moving fast and, you know, and you don't have the, the ability to read everything that's ever been done and, and build every source from scratch that you could possibly need. Reach out to other folks with expertise because you know, I'm really thrilled and pleased that 538 approached us and, and that we were able to put this piece together at, at the speed that we were. And I think with the degree of acuity that it had, I mean, just the, the reaction to it's been really phenomenal. And I know we want people to read your story, but what are some of the some of the things that you found out in your research? I think that one of the things that stood out for me was just how deep the amount of this research was and how far back it went. That, you know, you had all the way back in 1967, the Federal Kerner Commission finding that out of the 24 urban riots that it had studied in detail, half of them were directly started by police actions. You know, finding that data that goes that far back, I think was a real surprise for me. And I was not expecting it to be that, I guess that longstanding of knowledge. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, especially when you consider that, certainly since 9-11, certainly since the Patriot Act, 
you know, there's been growing concern over the militarization of police forces, that if this information was out there, you, th- you would think it would be more widely talked about or m- more widely covered. Absolutely. I, I think the other takeaway for me was, you know, talking to a number of former law enforcement voices and hearing their response to sort of why this hasn't become more widely adopted. And the point of view that I heard over and over again was either that it's a matter of culture among the rank and file who, who simply aren't interested in approaching policing mass demonstrations in this way, or that at the operational level, the higher ups in the department just didn't believe that it worked and instead believed that policing is a kind of war and there is a, a strategic value in shock and awe in showing up with such overwhelming power that protesters, demonstrators just decide it's not even it's not even worth it. I think one thing that was interesting that I ran into along those lines was that there had been this big turning point after the WTO protests in 1999, where for a while, for the previous like 20 years, there had been a lot more effort on the part of police departments to work with protesters ahead of time, have these negotiation tactics where you kind of have a permit to march that is dependent on everybody coming to an agreement over what's going to happen and where and how. And then that changed after 1999 and after you started seeing activist groups kind of taking on these new roles of direct action of, you know, basically not following the rules of engagement that they had worked out ahead of time with the police. And I thought that was interesting because the guy who had been in charge of that police department, I was told this by one of the researchers I talked to, he had come away from that, that protest with the idea of like, oh, we need to build more trust. We need to de-escalate. We need to like not try to overpower these things. That's not going to solve it. But that most of the rest of his department and a lot of other police officers around the nation came away with the opposite perspective and really started believing strongly that force was necessary. What has been the reaction to your your article? I think the reaction has been strong in the sense that it's been widely shared and and a lot of people have found the insights valuable. I would say the most useful and interesting pushback that we've received, at least from social media, has been the observation of a lot of people involved in the protest movement that the reason police don't de-escalate mass demonstrations is because they don't want to, because they, right. they are intentionally trying to provoke a violent response because that is in their sort of best interest from a, a PR point of view, right? I mean, if the police show up and, and people stay peaceful, then their message about police violence can be communicated. If tensions escalate and violence occurs, then the narrative becomes protests are violent. And I think that was a useful kind of interpretation and and addition that people reading and reacting to the article had. And I think there's probably more questions to be asked along those lines. Yeah, I find that interesting because, you know, part of my job, I've been covering the protests and sort of the the reaction to it by the police and by the local government. And there's this sort of perception of her, a lot of people aren't necessarily, you know, following day to day that when they hear protest, they think riot, they think violence. Mm. And obviously we're in the media, good video (laughs) is something happening that's clashing. You know, maybe the images of a peaceful demonstration may not 
somehow seem as engaging. But that being said, we are seeing videos like that. We are seeing videos of violence. We're also seeing videos of people protesting very peacefully. And, you know, this is just my, my feeling, having gone to a couple of very peaceful protests, I just get this sort of feeling that we're going to see sort of the perception of a lot of people of what these demonstrations are and what peaceful demonstrations are. I think it's going to change. And one thing I would love to just point out is, you know, I think we, we in the media need to push back on this idea of peaceful protest versus violent protest versus destruction. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah. they're just protests. And then there are, there are moments within them and there are factions within them that are very different, again, from one moment to the next and from one person standing to the next person. Their reason for being there can be diametrically opposed. Yeah. Their, yep. their tactics while they're there, the, the way that they feel is the most appropriate to get their point across. They don't have a purity test before you come to a protest. I don't think we should be defining protest by the sort of most dramatic right. two or five or 15 seconds and the most outrageous actions that a small minority of people there make, right? So yeah. that, that's just the small intervention I'd make. I wasn't advocating for that. Mm. I was just... No, I was just, no not at all. No, not at all. <laughs> I was, I was, I was just, as we talk to journalists, that's just one thing that I, I would keep, just say keep in mind from, from having reported on a number of these protests myself, like just that idea that, that a protest is one unified thing. It isn't. That's something I very much saw. So I, I was out last Thursday doing reporting with a freelancer from the Washington Post. He and I kind of got, went out together. And that was the night that the third precinct police station here in Minneapolis burnt down. And our original goal of that evening was to kind of go around and see in different parts of the city what protests looked like and who was doing it and how like this, this diversity of like what the protests in Minneapolis actually were because it was more than one thing and it still is more than one thing. You know, we've had protests happening this entire time and that are still ongoing, even though there's no longer really a lot of violent stuff happening here. That night, that Thursday, you know, we saw both, you know, people burning down a police station and we saw this other protest four miles away. It was a black organized, black youth organized protest that had involved moving through a lot of the wealthiest, whitest neighborhoods in Minneapolis. And as it went, it was picking up people from those neighborhoods, like this kind of Pied Piper thing moving, moving down Lake Street. And it was really amazing to see. And you had that happening at the exact same time that people were setting bonfires outside the police station. Those things are not necessarily, there's not like one unified thing happening at any given time. I agree with that. I had the opportunity to interview a um, protester who was injured in DC. And he sort of described how you know, he'd gone several nights and how each of the nights were different and how he sort of moved around in the city with different groups and mm -hmm. some groups, you know, I think he said in general, everybody was peaceful, but there, there were certain places and certain segments that things would sort of happen. There would be a response and then everything would sort of calm back down again. And then the peaceful protesters move forward. And if you spend your time following the police alerts about how they're following groups of people around the city, then you begin to see that it's sort of a amorphous blob of a mass of people, you know, it's a crowd, you know, that's sort of a loose organization to it. To your point before, I think, you know, some people go there with, with different intentions. 
and different ideas of how they want to make their point. They may agree with what everybody else is protesting, or they may not. Maybe, maybe it's an opportunity for them to, you know, sort of undermine a message. I don't know. I would also say that like even within the protesters that we met at the burning of the third precinct, there was a lot of diversity of thought. And there were people who were there and who were like watching that burn and were excited about that, but were against burning anything else. You know, there were people who were there and just kind of wanted to just were full of anger and we didn't really care what happened, but there were also people that were thinking about this in a really methodical way. And I think like one of the things that was really interesting to me was to go to this space where I was, you know, like surrounded by a classical mob that was lighting a building on fire, but like people were not having a mob mentality. You know, everybody I interviewed had these really thought out, like, deeply reasoned ideas about what they were doing and why they were there and what they wanted to get out of it. And I think that it, it upends a lot of the stereotypes we have of what happens in a riot and like what happens, what is happening in a protest that has violent elements to it. Yeah. It was really kind of interesting because a lot of people who, who, you know, that I talked to, never been to a protest before, felt motivated to come out and be involved somehow. And it's, you know, strange. It's all sort of mixed in with concerns about the coronavirus and social distancing. But in talking to them, you know, one by one, going through the crowd, you just get the sense of, I don't know, this sort of group involvement. And I don't know how to define it. I'm still thinking about it <laughs> two days later, trying to, trying to figure it out. So tell me, you know, what's it like being in Minneapolis while this is going on? Well, it's been really weird because like, just like you have the, the diversity of opinion within protests and the diversity of like what the protest looks like in town at any given point in time, you also have a lot of like, it's all contained in weird ways. So, you know, where I live... I was like literally sitting on my front porch and listening to birds. And then you could walk three or four blocks away and there was a jewelry store getting broken into, you know, it was very surreal in that respect that you can kind of go back and forth between what feels like completely normal life and what doesn't. What is normal anymore? (laughs) Well, I mean like the first night I went out reporting where I was, I'm like four miles away from the epicenter of all of this. And where I was, there was buildings being broken into. And I kind of went out to watch some of that on Wednesday night and see what was going on. And it kind of turned out to be this very deliberate, like people pulling up in cars, setting someone on stakeout, breaking into a specific store for specific stuff and then driving away. Like it was this very opportunistic theft that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the protests. But like, as I was walking back from that at like two o'clock in the morning, I, as soon as I got into the residential neighborhood nearby, everything was quiet. I could hear these birds and crickets and this dude on rollerblades, like comes through just having a little, having himself a little booty shake late night rollerblade dance. And I didn't even know what the hell to do with that. So when you go out to cover something like this, what are your thoughts? You obviously want to come back with some sort of story, with some sort of representation of what you've seen. How are you taking it in and how are you choosing what things to write about? Yeah, I have, I have yeah. um, in the past covered protests in uh, Memphis and St. Louis, 
New York. I, I think it depends on the thrust of the protest, the size, the scale, the moment, like what's the bigger context. I may have an idea for what kind of story I want to write, you know, before I, before I show up. If we're talking like general best practices, I mean, talk to lots of people and find out why they're there. Um, that actually does feel like something that's been a little bit absent in some of the coverage during 2020 that I think was more part of the coverage in prior years and prior police protests and, and certainly is a bigger part of coverage of protests when they tend to happen in other countries, when our four foreign correspondents are, in, are, for example, covering Arab Spring. Ask lots of people. I get that as a, as a journalist, when you've done enough of these protests, the responses start to feel canned because you've heard there's more or less like four or five answers for why people are, are at protests 90% of the time. Um, but if you keep asking, eventually you will get to that one really, really fascinating answer that is unique and different and illuminating and that your readers or viewers or listeners really need to hear. Um, so that'd be my major advice. Yeah, this is my first time doing this kind of coverage. Um, you know, I'm normally a science journalist. I just happened to have this happen in my backyard and I wanted to go out and see what was happening because I like Jamal said, I sort of felt like there was stuff missing from what I was reading that, you know, we had a lot of like literal 50 foot views from the TV helicopters and not a lot of like talking to people about why they were there. And that was something that I wanted to go do those nights. What, what are people telling you? Um, people are telling me that they've had a lot of anger for a lot of years. Um, you know, Minneapolis has had a high profile police killing, I think every single year for the last five years that has led to Black Lives Matter protests. It has a very long history of uh, very inequitable police and law enforcement practices between black and white residents. This is a longstanding thing that has many years of totally peaceful protesting behind it. The protests that happened here over the last five years didn't involve anybody, you know, breaking windows and burning things down. And people kept telling me like, we did all that and nobody did anything. And I think that was, that was important context that I sort of saw getting left out of the national reporting. What are your thoughts about, there've been many stories of instances of journalists, reporters out in the field trying to cover these protests, being injured, being attacked, being tear gassed or whatever. What are, what are your thoughts about that? I would share this. I mean, first of all, I want to say that I don't, it's not new, right? As a matter of just incidentally, journalists are always caught up in tear gas and pepper spray and police tactics of, of mass demonstrations. You know, I think you may remember in the fairly high profile arrests of Wes Lowry and um, Ryan Riley for the Huffington Post and the Washington Post, you know, we're both arrested in a McDonald's and in Ferguson, right? So this is not new and something that I've heard from a lot of my friends who are freelancers or independent journalists is that we don't have those shiny corporate press passes. We've been getting treated unfairly by the police, arrested like everyone else since forever. So what I'll also say though is, you know, my experience has been, yeah, I, I have certainly been at protests where I feel like I received that 
kind of professional courtesy from law enforcement of, okay, I see you're just doing your job. Please go to this corner. Hey, you can report from over there. And I've also been treated like the rest of the protesters when they get that kind of phalanx thing going with the shields and they're, they're coming forward and they're threatening chemical munitions. And that's what it is. I've also been pulled out of the street by a police officer when they were, were going to break up a protest and he didn't care about my press pass. So all of that said, this moment feels different. And certainly the video, it, it's only anecdotal right now, but the videos that we've seen of reporters clearly identifying themselves clearly in the middle of broadcast or, or reporting, having weapons pointed directly at them, tear gas, rubber bullets fired directly at them, does feel a little bit new and a little bit like an, an escalation or, or a development. Part of me wonders and has been contemplating whether or not that has something to do with President Trump's ongoing feud and antipathy for the press. He's a very popular person among law enforcement, and it, does, it seems reasonable to suspect that that maligning attitude towards the press has kind of transferred into his base. And by and large, law enforcement is his base, but that's kind of me speculating. So you both have gone out and covered protests. Is there, are there any steps that you take to, you know, make sure that you're safe? <laughs> so you're going to say no. It's like, oh, well, no, I mean, no, no, there, there were, there were steps. It was, mine was a little bit slapdash because I was doing this sort of, I mean, my editors knew what I was doing, but we're not a, we're not a breaking news organization. So I was kind of doing this on my own time and with a freelancer. So when we went out on Saturday night, which everyone was expecting to be a really, really big deal, although it turned out to not be, we had kind of pieced together our own little protection things out of, you know, skateboarding helmets and laboratory goggles and I made us vests out of life jackets with reflective tape spelling out press on the back of them and the front. And that was our protective gear. And I mean, we also took other steps. Like I had, I had my boyfriend's phone number written on my arm in Sharpie. We had press credentials of some sort with us at all times. It was an experience. I mean, like, like I said, I have not done this really before, but I had similar experiences to what Jamal's described where, you know, we had one officer who was very polite and said, I want you to guys be able to get your, be able to get your photos, but you can't stand here. It's not safe. And we had another guy who pointed a projectile gun at us and told us to shut up and told me that he wanted to fucking peg me. So it was kind of a mixed bag. Maggie, your experience is so similar to my experience and, and the experience that I've heard from other reporters who I know have done this work, which I think is just a testament to, I don't mean to be trite and say like how little things have changed, but a testament to, in large part, like this is, this speaks to the broader point that we're making, right? Like there are cultural undercurrents in police departments. So then this whole conversation about good apples and bad apples is very reductive, but like there are some folks who are there and happy to respect constitutional rights. And there are some folks who are there and really enjoying the power of telling people to move on and pointing projectiles at them. That's definitely both happening all the time. Yeah. You know, people who, you know, criticize rioters who, who think, oh, well, they're just getting caught up into it and causing violence, not realizing this is like an emotional situation for everybody who's involved there. And people may do things that you don't expect them to. They, you may do things that you don't expect them to. You got to keep your head screwed on, I guess, when you go out. 
So, you know, one of the things when we were were talking to journalists around the Baltimore uprisings that occurred a few years ago, the local journalists I was talking to, they were talking about, you know, misinformation from police. Uh, And this is more, this may be more of an after the fact sort of thing, trying to get information from the police after the fact. How do you sort of establish a trustworthy relationship with the police and cover an event that may reflect poorly on them, but try to get them, hold them accountable for, for what's going on? You're probably not a journalist if you haven't been lied to by a public official. (laughs) It just comes with the territory. Or maybe lied to is a strong word, although, I I mean, I'll say if you haven't been intentionally misled, uh, (laughs) yeah, misled or deceived by a public official, right? And and in a sense, that's, maybe this is... How cynical do you want to go, Jamile? Yeah, it's a little (laughs) cynical, but it's kind of their job, right? People have press agents and public relations people to put as good of a face on their organization as possible. That makes sense. So I don't necessarily expect a PR flack to tell me all of the dirtiest, deepest, darkest secrets or the least charitable interpretation how an event played out. So I think you keep a professional relationship by being open and honest and you know, respecting the terms of being on and off the record by you know, understanding, like trying to be empathetic to the fact that they have a job to do. They're representing a certain perspective and your job is to represent their perspective as well as many others. Yeah, I think as a journalist, if you haven't learned early on that the public information officer actually provides no information, and more often than not, that you're probably not doing your job. Jamiles, Maggie, this is a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.